I was just saying to Chris, it's easy to preach after a song like that. We first met just over 25 years ago, and we were thrilled when uh, Chris Gare and his family moved to Washington, where we overlapped quite a few years. Interestingly also, this is a great song, a great hymn that lifts up Christ. Today, when I get to the sermon, I'll be taking us to one of the most inspiring hymns in the New Testament. The New Testament has many hymns, not just in the book of Revelation. Often they're incorporated in various sections of the uh, various letters and gospels. Was that, was that light going to come down? Okay, thank you. As is my custom, often I begin just sharing where I've been or some things from around the world. So uh, indulge me, give me a couple of minutes here. Uh, many of us returned from Israel, but that was a couple weeks ago. So what, what I'm going to share about today is all of the United States. Since I've been up here last, I went to California on the way to Hawaii. Had a chance to just visit some older Christians and spend time with a daughter. From there, Hawaii, we went southeast uh, from California, southeast to Hawaii, this island group in the Gulf of Mexico, <laughs> right underneath Louisiana. <laughs> I was visiting many friends and, and also just doing a lot of teaching, and that was great. Even being on the, the battleship where World War II uh, officially came to an end, also in the submarine and with the Honolulu Church, who are, who are joyful and on a very good track. Very, very encouraging indeed. Uh, from there, back to Georgia. And if you're visiting today from another country, that's Georgia right there. <laughs> we had our AIM weekend, Christian Evidences. Christian Evidences are ways to proclaim the good news, not just to proclaim it in a positive way, but also to refute error. There's kind of a defensive side. When people say things about Christ or the Bible that are not true, what do you say? And then there's a the positive side. How do we best proclaim this message? And that was a, a great time, a great success. It's a lot of material that we developed in our years in Europe. And also, um, this last weekend, I was able to help my friend Arturo Elizarras and churches all over Mexico. And the topic they gave me was the forbidden books of the Bible. Now, the truth is there are no forbidden books. Even Song of Solomon is okay now. But we're talking about the so-called apocryphal books, things written centuries after the New Testament. But it's a fun thing to teach on. And then just a few days, I'll be going back out, I'll be in Colorado, which is uh, just in Denver, doing a lot of teaching with my colleagues in the Rocky Mountain School of, as they say, ministry and theology, and these are people working on master's degrees. So we'll be teaching apologetics there, doing a lot of stuff with our sister church, and also speaking in a, a global evidences ministry called Reasonable Faith. They've invited me to, to speak there. I've been producing a lot of new material lately, but what I'm most excited about right now is definitely the message that I want to preach to you. This hymn. We're in a series. Our series right now, our autumn series, was these three J's. Sermons from Jonah, then uh, sermons from James, and then the sermons about Jesus. In our series about Jesus, we've been going in a very particular order. First, what do we see about Jesus's compassion and generosity as Matthew presents him? 
The next sermon was answering that question from Mark. The following sermon was from Luke. Uh, then last week we had a message from John. Today's message is Jesus and Paul. Now, Paul is not a, it's not a gospel, but he does speak a lot about Jesus Christ. And this is the title for the message, and that will be explained soon enough. It's amazing to me that some liberal scholars want to say that Paul invented Christianity. Paul took this earthly, very human rabbi and made him eternal, turned him into God, and Paul had no interest in the historical Jesus. He just had interest in the God that he made him. Well, this really doesn't work, partly because the divinity of Jesus is reported at the earliest stages of the New Testament, not just in the later documents. But more than that, we can refute this notion easily. Just think of 1 Corinthians. Paul knows all about the cross. He knows about the Last Supper. And thank you for the meaningful celebration we just took part in. I appreciate that. He speaks of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and his appearances. And there are many other things. For example, in Acts 20, Paul quotes from one of Jesus' sayings that's not in the Gospels because they were many and only a few were selected in the Gospels. So Paul is definitely interested in Jesus' life, his human life. And if we want to just stick with our theme, and I fully intend to, the theme of compassion and generosity, just think of what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 11, he has been urging the Corinthians to give up their rights to be willing to be inconvenienced, to be inconvenienced for the sake of their brothers and sisters. And he ends that section with the appeal to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Christ who, who gave up his rights. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. We just had the message about the cheerful giver. But in that whole section, chapters 8 and 9, Paul is organizing a contribution which necessitated the, the generosity of Gentile Christians, particularly to help Jewish Christians for the sake of unity. And Jesus himself, it says he became poor. He was rich. That's not talking about his human life because he was born into a working class family. He was rich in heaven, became poor so that we could become truly rich. I think of 1 Corinthians 13, the love of Christ, his kindness. Uh, so Paul knows all about Jesus' incredible love and generosity. And in Philippians chapter 2, he tells us how Jesus actually gave all for us. And this is the text we're going to be looking at. The hymn itself is starting in verse 6, but we need verse 5 for context. Sometimes it's called Carmen Christi, uh, Latin for the song of Christ. And this will be our text for today. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a reference to baptism. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us your word, which is, it's wonderful, it's, it's lofty, it's simple, but so profound, easy to apply at times, puzzling at other times, but always refreshing when we apply it. Help me to be a faithful preacher. Help those who've made Jesus Lord in the audience to be faithful listeners. And may your word not come back void, but have an impact today. In Jesus, amen. Okay, so that's our passage. What is this passage? It's a hymn. There are quite a few hymns in the New Testament. You'll find the next one in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. And some of the translations lay out the verse, so it's a little easier to tell that. But what's going on in Philippians? Often we hear that Philippians is about joy because there are lots of times the word joy or happiness appear. Others say the theme of Philippians is Christ because Christ is mentioned so often. I think those are both themes, but the major theme, unless I'm getting it wrong, the major theme is about selflessness and selfishness. It's about motives. It's about why we do what we do. And the Philippians are having some problems. I mean, you can read about some of the tension in chapter one. Uh, some very public um, issues are, are dealt with in chapter four. We're going to be looking at chapter two, and that entire chapter is about becoming more like Christ, becoming more selfless. Now, of course, no one could have been more selfless than Jesus because no one had more to give up. When, when, this is not just a rich man voluntarily becoming a poor man like Francis of Assisi. This is someone who had unspeakable, unfathomable riches in heaven, foregoes all of that and is born not into a palace, but more into a, a stable. No one could have been more selfless. Jesus, as it said, how did it put it? Although he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. For the alert readers, you saw that I put in, in parentheses up there, God the Father. Because in the New Testament, almost every time you read the word God, it's talking about God the Father. Rarely is it talking about uh, the whole Trinity. Uh, very rarely. Sometimes it talks about Christ, but very seldom. But it's, it's God the Father. And it's kind of perplexing. You think, what, what do you mean Jesus, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped? Wasn't he God? Yes, he was God in nature, but not God in person or in order. There's some big differences between Father, Son, and Spirit. This is worth a series. We can't get into it right now. That would be the issue of person or personality. There are differences, but there's also a difference in order. Jesus submits to the Father. The Son is subordinate to the Father, not only in heaven, in the past, and in the future, 
but obviously on his uh, on the earth when Jesus was here. Constantly, he tells us that he, he aims to please the Father, that he obeys the Father. So he's fully God in nature, but in order, no. Jesus comes after the Father. And unlike that devil, unlike Adam, he wasn't tempted with uh, kind of beefing up his power and his personal autonomy. Another really cool thing about that passage is the way it ends. It speaks of, a, it quotes a, a verse in the Old Testament where God's, let's say, they're not the people of God. God's enemies, certainly they're idolaters. People who, who worship false gods will bow down and confess that God is the true God. When Paul takes that passage and he says that that's about Jesus, that's just one of many places in the Bible where we see that Jesus is God. This great passage speaks of not only the incarnation, the Son coming down to earth, it speaks of his attitude, his great generosity and compassion, his life, his death, his exaltation. And the very next section, which we'll not read, but starting in verse 12, tells us in light of these important truths about Jesus, how we should live. What does this mean? Then we get the more familiar passages about complaining and arguing. In the holiday season, uh, children will often be told off for not being grateful uh, or for misbehaving because of the extra pressures that come with hospitality. Uh, you can show them you can show them uh, Philippians 2.14. If they don't repent, show them 2.12 and scare the life out of them. But a better way to do it is the way Paul did it. Here's the reason we should do things the right way. The reason is because Jesus did it this way. He put himself second. He emptied himself. He gave up his rights. And then the chapter ends with more illustrations. Paul has already shared about himself, but in this chapter, he shares about Christ. This is our passage, Carmen Christi. And then in the second part, he talks about Timothy. Timothy, who has a genuine concern. Timothy, who also exemplifies this kind of selflessness. And then we have, you can't read it because it's blocked out for some reason, but we have Epaphroditus, one other Christian who did just a great job meeting needs. We're just setting the table right now. We're going to draw the applications in a moment, but not quite yet. Emptying oneself, as Jesus did, it occurs to me, is the opposite of many things in this season that dubiously pass themselves off as Christian. It's a time when we enrich ourselves by receiving many gifts in a time with most people in the world are fortunate to get any gift. It's a time when we gorge ourselves gastronomically. I wanted to put it more delicately because last time I preached I used the word gluttony and I promised I wouldn't use that word again, <laughs> which I just did. But in the early Thanksgivings, and we know this, Tom's talked about George Washington instituting the, the day. Oh, that's a great idea. But those original uh, you know, pilgrim Thanksgivings were in a time of hardship. And the hope was not, the hope was really, are we going to live 
and, and be able to harvest it again next year? How many people will die in this coming harsh winter? Will I have enough to feed my children? Not the modern concern, Oh, will I put on 10 pounds? Could I still wear my dress if I put on 12 pounds over the holiday? You know, we're concerned about things like that. We're concerned about things that, well, I think show that we don't really understand uh, the, the attitude we should have. Um, I saw this yesterday. Well, you're seeing Black Friday stuff everywhere. Black Friday just got better. Enjoy deeper discounts on select PCs before they're gone. And there's this sense that the clock is ticking. Hurry, hurry, hurry. It's special only today or only tonight. So the message is buy, buy, buy. Consume, consume, consume. I'm not a party pooper who teaches it's wrong to give a gift or receive one. But there's a possibility of just going overboard. And I think awareness of our planet and what's really going on around the world, plus just basic modesty, should govern our attitudes with the example of Christ to, to be much more, let's say, temperate uh, or, or moderate and not to, to well, the, the, the phrase there, uh, emptying self is the opposite of enriching ourselves materialistically, gorging ourselves gastronomically. I hope we'll do better than that um, at Christmas and at Thanksgiving, which is kind of all one uh, one event now, Thanksmas or something like that. <laughs> all right. It's time for some kind of uh, application. Certainly, we need to avoid being sucked into the materialistic vortex. And that's hard. That little thing is swirling around and sucking you, bending your event horizon, bending space-time itself. So you cannot resist. You have to buy. You have to receive. You have to hint what you want to get. We end up spending money that we don't always actually have. And that has an impact, uh, particularly in the first quarter of the new year, as you're trying to dig out of a hole. Don't do that. Don't do that. Generous sharing. This is a, a valid application of the principle. Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself to come to earth. He emptied himself even while he was on the earth. He emptied himself. He gave. He gave. Last week, Tom talked about contribution a bit. Commending the college students for their generosity in evangelism, but not so much for their giving to the contribution which hardly registers. I don't think that Tom should even have to bring this up. Ideally, we perceive the needs and we live generously and we're willing to empty ourselves, empty our pockets, kind of in a metaphorical way. I hope it's not a false comparison, but when I was a college student in the 70s, I took a part-time job just to have a little bit of extra money, because I didn't want to be taking money that my parents had saved and giving that to the church. I worked for the math department, so I would have something to put into the plate. Grad school, I, I, I entered grad school in 1980. I don't remember exactly what I gave, but I think most of us gave about $20 a piece, you know, if we were graduate students. After I graduated, moved to London, very expensive. Europe is very expensive. You can spend 30% or even 60% of your salary just on your apartment. Things are expensive and small. I started off giving 
20% of my income. I have a friend who did 50%. So I'm quite perplexed when I speak to some of our students who say, oh, I'm a poor college student. I'm so poor, I had to order a $15 pizza last night. That's why I can only put in $2. I just don't buy that. I don't accept that high school students cannot give five or $10 a week. All they have to do is do a chore, do a little part-time work, mow a lawn, or if we get lucky this year, shovel a driveway. <laughs> There's always a way, and teens are resourceful. I think we hurt them as parents. We hurt them spiritually when we're fine with them just throwing in a quarter or 50 cents or a dollar. It's, it's just, it's out of phase. Even when I was a kid, that, was, that would have been chintzy at best. And I would urge you to rethink this and talk about this with significant others. Singles, families, let's not be tightwads. I was talking to the elders You're not, your giving is not monitored. We do know that uh, very few people in North River give cash. Most do checks or online. We do online. But we do know, you can see the patterns, that there are a couple hundred people who are members of the church but give nothing. They ride on the coattails of those who do. That's not right. It certainly doesn't, it's not very congruent with the example of Christ who emptied himself, who gave for others' sake. Cheerful givers. We, we have a lot of cheerful givers in North River, and I'm grateful for that. We have others who are givers, not so cheerful, but at least they give. And we have others who are cheerful, very cheerful, not giving at all. <laughs> I suggest you go back to that passage, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, that we looked at it, Thank you, Harold. But look, look at that passage again and make the application. There's another way that this principle of emptying ourselves can apply, and that's our evangelism. Yeah, I was here last week. I'm here two-thirds of the time. So I have a pretty good idea of what is taught. And because I usually sit in the back, I have a pretty good idea of how people respond to what is taught. Tom delicately brought up the subject of evangelism. He said, you know, he commended the campus, but what about the rest of us? I was waiting for, now let me have a word for the, the singles in the church. And now for those of you who are distracted by plans for retirement, what are you doing? How long have you lived in your house? Do you have any neighbors who you've not shared with? How many people did you share with yesterday? Are you gonna, will you probably share your faith with anyone today? Well, Tom is an interesting fellow. Paradoxically, he's incredibly evangelistic. Jeff, the other preacher in North River, is also evangelistic. But I think these guys go pretty soft when it comes to calling the church to be evangelistic. I think we would actually like to be challenged, pushed, kicked, inspired, reminded, and in a biblical way, held accountable for this. So I'm gonna to say to the regular preachers, don't hold back. If it's in the scripture and you have a conviction, don't do it every time we talk, but please don't leave that out. We'll be healthier because of that. You might want to memorize 
This next section, the section I did not read, 12 to 18. How about imitating Timothy's example, 19 to 24, or Epaphroditus' example, 25 to 30. Get excited about the word of God. Well, it's not just giving money and, and then sharing the gospel. Those are two very obvious applications. Another, and I think this is even closer to the principle of what Paul is saying here, is to be giving in the fellowship. The fellowship is not what happens for seven minutes, you know, at 1051, and then again, you know, at uh, 1142. Fellowship is something that we take part in every day. It's every day, it's throughout the week, it's every month of the year. But if we did only talk about those few minutes here in this building, let's be giving. Jesus poured himself out. Whoever's here is either a Christian or not, a brother or a sister or not, hopefully one who will become a brother or sister. Everyone here is either our spiritual family or a friend, someone who is welcome. Now, if these are actually our spiritual brothers and sisters, comrades in the battle, sharers in the mission, we have a lot to talk about. And we know the harder you push against the current of the world, the harder the world pushes back. We need encouragement. This is one of the big functions of church is to encourage each other, uh, to stay strong for the, the battle. Encourage us in the fellowship. Reach out to guests. Now, it's true. Most times, if in the fellowship, you say, okay, I'm going to share with someone I've not met before, it will typically not be a visitor. It's just because of the numbers. It's more likely to be a member you haven't met. Or you did meet them once, but your memory did not. <laughs> but I feel always a bit uneasy when I'm with someone and I can't remember them or their name, or whatever. There's one way to get over that, though it's humbling. And that's just to start a conversation, and if they don't give you a name, you ask for it. The humbling part is what happens the following week when you forgot the name already. <laughs> but that's okay. Reach out to the teachers and encourage them as we try. Those who are burdened, burdened or look burdened, your leaders, children. Yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm 45. That kid is only 11. You know, even reaching out to an 11-year-old might have an impact you could not possibly anticipate. In real families, we have kids, we have parents, we have grandparents. These relationships are paralleled in the church. The right attitude, in short, is freely you have received, freely give. And that verse you see on the screen is from the Gospel of Matthew, Interestingly, it was also the motto of the college where I did my doctorate. Um, most of the students have no idea what their college motto is or what it means. But it's straight from the gospel. Freely we received, we received because Christ emptied himself. Freely give. In the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being found in human form, humbled himself, obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. It's time to wrap it up. Let's make a decision today if we need to.
be generous with our money. It's not our money anyway, it's God's money. To be generous in sharing in the fellowship and to be generous with the word of God, not just assuming, well, that person looks like he might be saved or she has a nice smile, probably a Christian, not assuming. Because that's either an opportunity for evangelism or for fellowship to be determined once you start the conversation. Let's be giving. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to have poor boundaries. Okay, I'll cancel everything with my family and I'll run out there and every suggestion anyone gives, I'll follow that. No, this doesn't become, it's not like becoming a Jesus freak. A fool for Christ, yes. That's biblical, 1 Corinthians 4. Uh, but, but not a freak. Be wise and don't be an enabler to someone who who's basically wants to look good because of what you do. Think about this. Watch out for false comparisons. So maybe, you know, we had the, the uh, communion today from Luke 22. So maybe later you're looking up the passage, always a good thing to do if it's unfamiliar. And maybe you go back a chapter or two and you read about the, uh, the poor widow who put in everything she had, which was like five cents. She puts in everything and you think, wow, I, I see the average contribution, which I could, you know, all you do is look at the weekly contribution of the bulletin, divide by a thousand, because we're about a thousand members. Move the decimal point over three places, and you'll see what the average is. For some people to give the average would not be wise, because you are in such incredible debt. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't give anything. It just means that you, you reach in, it's a bit more shallow now. Hopefully in the future you get up to that 10, 20, 30% uh, range you'd like to be giving at. Don't make false comparisons because they, they will actually prevent you from getting out of debt. Emptying ourselves does not mean we should be running on empty. Okay, I'll give up all sleep. That's, that's my New Year's resolution, not to sleep. Not to... To empty yourself, you need to be full first. So stay full. Not with food food, but with spiritual food. Although, frankly, having an enormous feast like Thanksgiving, Christmas, I think that's a good thing. These are not bad traditions, and they won't hurt you if you're self-controlled the rest of the year. You could have, you could have an enormous uh, feast every month once or twice, it's not going to affect you. If you do it all the time, though, it will affect you very much. Emptying ourselves doesn't mean we stay empty. Let's be men and women who take initiative. And the examples given in Philippians 2, Epaphroditus, Timothy, Paul himself, and Jesus show persons taking initiative, making a choice, embracing the form of, of service. And that's something... I want to do. I hope you feel the same. It'll be hard to do if we don't resist the tide of materialism. The world tells us that, you know, it's all joy if we receive presents. There's something that's very energizing about the seasons, seasonal spirit, the holiday spirit, something that's very good about that. There's also something that's kind of hokey about that. Really, this should be our spirit year round. But let's resist that tide of materialism. And why bother? Why bother? Well, because Jesus did.
Let's empty ourselves, leave nothing on the field. Let's give 100%. Why do that? Because that's what Jesus did. That's the reason. The reason is not because, well, that's the agenda of the church or my family group leader asked me to do it. The motivation for not grumbling, the motivation for sacrificing and caring about other people is Jesus Christ. That's a motivation that will carry us through the season, through all next year until our dying breath.